Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, Shiloh, now we're getting into Mormon chapters 1 through 6. This is probably the saddest part of the whole Book of Mormon, or one of the saddest parts of the whole Book of Mormon. And we just kind of finished with like the happiest part of the Book of Mormon. Now we're delving into the saddest part, the fall destruction of the people of Nephi, as they're called, the Nephites, as reported by Mormon. And this is basically Mormon's short little biography. So here is where we can pull any sort of clues as to the life of Mormon and how it fits in with the broader narrative of the Book of Mormon to give us any clues as to how he compiled it and why he did it the way he did how it fits in with, with what's going on in these chapters. We start off with, with him when he's 10 years old, getting a charge from Amaron to receive the records. He grows up in a, in a society that's just completely wicked, but then he becomes, for some reason, their military leader, leads them in, into war, has some success, but ultimately the people are, are so wicked and that he can't really get anywhere with it. The Lamanites overwhelm and destroy them. And we have this, in my opinion, very beautiful lament at the end of chapter six, you know, the O ye fair ones that I I think deserves a place in religious poetry. In any case, this, uh, these chapters, like some others, sometimes in the Book of Mormon, were actually more impactful to me listening to them, like in the app than reading them. So like I listened to them and kind of like felt the emotion of it, so to speak. And then I went back and read through it and was able to kind of pick out some more interesting points about what was actually going on. Yeah, this was the first time that I had listened to it before I'd actually read it too. And I had the same experience. That's kind of funny. Seeing it and listening to it go by so fast, I think has its own merit and it has it's a different kind of experience. Mormon is such a fascinating character. You know, we are so informed in the Book of Mormon by Mormon. You know, we have the first part of the Book of Mormon from First Nephi through the words of Mosiah. I'm sorry, for the words of Mormon. Then it then that's when his actual compilation begins, right? That that's when his voice comes right. into it. And so much of the Book of Mormon narrative is through the voice of Mormon. His narration, how he's scripting the story, how he's building the story, how he's connecting stories from the beginning to the end and the patterns, it's all him. And I don't think that we really give him enough emphasis and study in recognizing just how impactful this narration from this one man is. And so it really is to, as you said, to read his actual biography, this little biography of his, where he's now talking about himself, makes this a really interesting bit of scripture in the Book of Mormon canon, because now we're actually getting to see a little bit of his life experience, possibly some of how his bias fits into some of the text. We're beginning to see what happened in his life. 
you know, when we did the war chapters, we talked about how possibly the war chapters, and we gave some evidence for it, were the first thing that he maybe wrote. Now going through these chapters, you know, from one through six, I started to see a lot more scaffolding, as it were, that, you know, to be able to build on that idea, to see how he was given the plates at such a young age. And then he was told, you know, once he was 24 to go collect the rest of them, then how the wars ended up happening and what he did with the wars and how did he know how to build these certain embankments and how did he know how to build these fortifications? And then we, you know, we'll talk about his trying to rally his people with kind of like a second title of liberty and that doesn't work. And it's almost as if he's now going through all of these records he's gotten a hold of. And this is this is really popular military strategy. Generals have to study the history of the generals before them. Right. So if you're going to live by the sword and die by the sword, you better well know that narrative and know how that works. Because if that's what you're going to rely on, you better know it. And so Mormon seems to read through all of these old records, find this story, and we know he's already. You know, it, when I say fanboy, that's kind of a negative connotation, but he's kind of he's kind of fanboying over Moroni. I mean, he names his son after you know because this Captain Moroni figure that mm-hmm. happened how many hundreds of years ago. And that he happens to find this story in this library of plates that he's pulling from. He ends up scripting out this whole Captain Moroni story. Like, hey, listen, there's this guy in our history who did all of these things. And look, he fought for he fought for their wives and their women and their children and and for their and for their God. And that's what we need to be doing. And and look, God saved them. And so we get, you know, even look at this Helaman guy. You know, he's known the less like Captain Moroni, and God saved him and and then this is how they fortified and this is how they strategized. And, you know, you can see how the war chapters really played an intimate role in his life because that's that's all he's dealing with. But, yeah, it's, right. this is absolutely a fascinating part of scripture. Yeah. You know, we, we see here at the beginning, Mormon chapter one, he he's approached by Amaron when he's 10 years old, which, by the way, Amaron is the grandson of Nephi. The disciple of Christ, so it's really not that far removed from Christ. These people, I think, did we do the the math last time? These people really lived a ridiculously long time <laughs> during the time of Christ. So a really long time. Some secret that Christ gave them about long life. <laughs> Something is in the water. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so by the time of Mormon, though, it's he's reverted back to normal lifespans of human beings. <laughs> um, <laughs> what we would call normal these days. But but anyway, so Amaron comes to him says, hey, the records are here, and when you're 24, you should go get them. I don't know why 24 is the magic number, but that's what Amaron felt. It should be, you're going to be a responsible person. You know, I guess today we say when you're 25, you can rent a car. So maybe that's kind of what Amaron's thinking. <laughs> you're, you're responsible enough to handle all these records when you're 24. You get, you, get in your Flintstone mobile and it'd be like, just right. foot pedal your way over to the plates and then foot pedal your way back. Yeah, I guess. So he's, that's the reason. But, you know, he he's born and apparently lives in the land northward. So he's really removed from the center of Nephite society until he's 10, 11 years old. For some reason, his father brings him, says he carries him into down into the land of Nephi from the land northward. And he becomes engrossed in this, the center of Nephite culture and society. And he's 11 years old and this war starts. I can see as an 11-year-old, you know, being a little bit fascinated by this concept of, of war and, and, and what's going on geopolitically and so forth, but then also being taught by his, his parents about the, the wickedness of the people in general that's, that's going on. So he was still 
apparently taught in his home the truth. And even though society all around him was, was very wicked, it says in verse 15, he tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. I kind of like that. You know, it just basically says he had the experience. I like that word tasted. You know, it goes back to a discussion we've had before about tasting salt and not being able to really describe it. And and Mormon here is just saying, I really experienced and and understood, you know, what Christ was like. So great, really short, uh, but profound testimony there. Verses 16 and 17. It's interesting to me that Mormon uses the passive voice here. So I'm going to read this. He says, I did endeavor to preach unto this people, but my mouth was shut. So my mouth was shut. That's a passive voice. It doesn't tell us who was doing the shutting, right? Just that it was done. And I was forbidden that I should preach unto them. For behold, they had willfully rebelled against their God. And the beloved disciples were taken away out of the land because of their iniquity. But I did remain among them, but I was forbidden to preach unto them because of the hardness of their hearts. And because of the hardness of their hearts, the land was cursed for their sake. I had always inferred from these verses that the, the shutting and the forbidding was being done by the Lord, but I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. And I think that we're going to find out in these later chapters here that the Lord actually commands him to go and tell the people to repent and build the church back up. So I think that it's possible, you know, there's, there's different ways you could take this, but, but one possibility here is that it's not the Lord that was forbidding him, but it was the people themselves. And, you know, what is he, 15 years old right now? If he feels like he's supposed to go out and preach, you know, how are the people going to receive him? Well, they're going to, they're going to shut his mouth. They're going to forbid him, say, no, you can't preach here. So I, I think in terms of the overall narrative here and what happens here in the in chapter three, where the Lord tells him to actually go out and, and preach to the people, I think it makes at least as much sense that this isn't the Lord telling him not to preach. It's actually the people that are rejecting his preaching. And this is a pretty standard pattern of prophets where they come and they're first rejected. And then the Lord tells them to go back and preach, right? We had that with Abinadi. We had that with Alma. We have it with a bunch of prophets, Samuel Lamanite. Right. And so this is seems to me almost like Mormon's pattern here. He's going to preach to the people. They reject him. And then at a later time, he comes back and preaches to them. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And I never hadn't really caught that until you brought that up about because I, I did. I thought that that was the Lord, too. You know, the Lord had like caused him like, you know, you're not going to preach. And I'd always wondered, like, why is the Lord telling him not to preach? And why is he shutting it up? And that was a question in my mind. But then I was reading this. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, it doesn't actually explicitly say the Lord did the shutting. And so, yeah, who did the shutting? And, and uh, he you know, was not commanded to preach. No, uh, going back a little bit, though, how weird is it that Amaron looks at a 10 year old Mormon and says that I perceive that you're a sober child? I would like to know what the original word for sober there meant. And I don't think it means that you're not drunk. You know, you have a society sure. of drunk people. Sober's serious. Yeah, I think sober's you more. You take like, things that are that are supposed to be serious seriously. Right. At, at ten years old, he's he's chosen yeah. at ten years old. Yeah. How many ten year olds do you know that are that are that way? Right. Yeah. It's just it's absolutely fascinating. So his father carries him. I'd like to know what that means too. I'd like to know, <laughs> was it one of those things like he literally picked him up, he carried him, and then that was like an intimate moment with his father? We don't know anything about Mormon's parentage. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he came from. And so, you know, who, what's his- father's his... name was Mormon. That's all we know. Right. 
And so it's just one of those things that, you know, I'd like to know more about, uh, more about him as a person. We don't get a whole lot of that, you know, just who was his, you know, who's his mother, who's his father. But then we get into this, you know, the end of chapter one, where it says, but I did remain among them, but I was forbidden to preach, just like you said, because of the hardness of their hearts, because of the hardness of their hearts, the land was cursed for their sake. The Gadianton robbers came along in in verse 18, and we then see the fulfillment of Samuel the Lamanite's prophecies about their treasures being being slippery. And it says in, in the last verse there, and it came to pass that there were sorceries and witchcrafts and magics, and the power of the evil one was wrought upon all the face of the land, even unto the fulfilling of all the words of Abinadi and also of Samuel the Lamanite. You know, I'm not one, I, I don't dabble in the occult and I don't understand the whole gambit of sorceries and witchcrafts and magics and the power therein. But suffice it to say, it looks like there's something, you know, I've only ever breezed over these verses because I haven't, I literally have no context to them. Right. I don't, I don't, <laughs> don't go out looking for the powers of evil to see like, like what, what, what are those things? You know, I, I just have never had any interest. So, and just, Pass another passing casual observation that I, I would wonder what the modern day equivalent of that would look like in the context of, of how we deal with things today and, and how we fight. You know, going to like Carl Jung, and it, is this a lot of just psychology? Is this actual metaphysical power? You know, what, you know, what is this? And it just doesn't give us enough context to really be able to know. But in chapter two, we end up getting in where in verse four, we see that there's, you know, there's another, there's another, uh, fight. There's another battle. The Nephites run away. They see the Lamanites are too much. So they, they end up going and take the city of Angola. And it says, and it came to pass that we did fortify the city with our might and notwithstanding all of our fortifications, the Lamanites had come upon us and to drive us out of the city. You know, so here's one of the first evidences that we have that Mormon is out here doing this and he's actually now fortifying these cities. Well, how does he know to fortify these cities in right ways and correct ways? This is where I think we're getting some evidence that he's reading those texts and he's actually knowing how to fortify. Now, obviously, maybe they already have military strategy that they know and they enforce and they're already practicing. But coming in with what we're going to read here in the next page by kind of invoking this idea of a lot of the shared language of the title of liberty. This is Mormon early, early on as a very young man who's going through and reading these records and compiling that war chapter narrative that we're going to hear at the end of Alma, right? So it's just, it, it, it's absolutely fascinating. But behold, in verse eight, it says, the land was filled with robbers and with Lamanites and notwithstanding the great destruction which hung over my people, they did not repent of their evil doings. Therefore, there was blood and carnage spread throughout all the face of the land, both on the part of the Nephites and also on the part of the Lamanites. And it was one complete revolution throughout all the face of the land. Th this for me is is astounding, especially since we've been talking about repentance so heavily, not as kind of we commonly in the culture talk about it as you do something wrong, go to God, ask for forgiveness, obtain forgiveness, restore what you try to break, and then go on your merry way and try not to do it again. But to really adopt the idea that the LDS Bible Dictionary talks about as having a completely fresh view and a new way of looking at God about ourselves and about each other. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at here and I see repentance, they did not repent of their evil doings. I see that these people are actually acting in a particular way because of their, they believe God is a certain way. And that justifies who and what they are and how they act with each other. That's what they need to repent of. 
And so it's always this dissemination. And what do we believe God would do? Would God allow us to be able to be attacked by our enemies and not defend ourselves? No, God would just go, you know, of course he'd allow us to defend ourselves. We know, would God have us just to sit here and just have them walk all over us? And should we go up there and would God want us to go up there and destroy that evil out of the land? Well, of course God wants that. So, you know, that's exactly what we should do. And we find that the Nephites actually proactively go out and try to destroy the Lamanites, which we know in previous places in the Book of Mormon, that's a really big Mm no-no. You don't go out to destroy your enemies on like a proactive, you know, the best defense is a proactive offense. You know, when it comes to war, the Book of Mormon is extremely explicit on you don't do that. Right. When it says to repent of their evil doings, every time I read repent, in my mind, I read, see God in a new way. And see yourself in a new way and see each other in a new way. And as I did that reading through it this time, it kind of made the story sadder <laughs> because he's like, repent. Even more tragic. Yeah, yeah, it's even more tragic because I'm, I'm sitting there and it's like, repent. See God in a new way. See him as he manifested himself originally when he came. See him in that way. And they're like, no, we're going to see him in this way. And that way is, you know, they curse God and wish to die. And, and then at that point, you know, their destruction. So. Yeah. I mean, I see in this chapter two, Mormon, he's taking over the charge of the armies and he's 15 years old. We're seeing all the inexperience of him here, right? They they really start losing right off the bat. And uh, even though they fortify the city, you know, they lose it. They apparently chose him. It says, notwithstanding, I being young was large in stature. Therefore, the people of Nephi appointed me that I should be their leader. Uh, you know, he doesn't have hardly any experience. He's just a big, strong guy. And so they're just like, you're, you need to be our leader really kind of talks to their state of mind right now. You know, they're just only looking at physical strength as what is important. You know, you talked about how verse eight is them just, uh, just this continual blood and carnage throughout all the face of the land. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the violence begets violence and you killed my brother. So I'm going to kill you. This is what happens. It's, it's described, I think in a little more detail in either when we get to the Jaredites, but that's certainly what's happening here. It's just vengeance, you know, back and forth and vengeance masked, you know, with the mask of justice. And so we have that just, just going on here, but here starting in about verse 10 for me, we have uh, what I believe, at least for this uh, scripture section, to be one of the most fascinating descriptions by Mormon. Because as I was reading through this, I don't know at what point this kind of stood out to me, but then I went back and, and started picking it out. From verse 10 through about verse 19, we have what I would call the anti-Beatitudes. What happens here is Mormon is describing the state of the people. And as I was reading through this, I recognized every single one of the Beatitudes or their antithesis in the people here. So let's look at verse 10. It says, It came to pass that the Nephites began to repent of their iniquity and began to cry, even as had been prophesied by Samuel the prophet. Great, they're repenting. They're they're emptying themselves of all these things, right? Well, it says, for behold, no man could keep that which was his own for the thieves and the robbers and the murderers and the magic art and the witchcraft, which was in the land. So when we talk about 
the first beatitude of being poor in spirit, we talk about sort of a, a metaphysical state of us getting rid of our preconceived notions, you know, being spiritually poor in terms of not having all that baggage that would cumber up our minds so that we're ready to receive the gospel. Here, we have the complete opposite of being spiritually poor, which is a voluntary relinquishment of our ideas in order to accept the truth. Here we have an involuntary loss of physical material goods and anger because of it. And it's just fa- it's just a fascinating, complete antithesis of being poor in spirit. These people are angry because of the loss of their material possessions. And they're not really repenting right here. As, as Mormon later discovers, this isn't real repentance. It's just anger. <laughs> and so what happens in the next verse? Thus there began to be a mourning and lamentation in all the land because of these things, and more especially among the people of Nephi. Right? How is that not the antithesis of blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted? Because now, what are they they're, they're mourning over? Well, their condition and their state of having lost all of these things. Total opposite of what a beatitude mourning is. And it came to pass that when I, Mormon, saw their lamentation and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord, my heart did begin to rejoice within me. He thinks they're, they might be starting on this beatitude path, right? <laughs> right. Knowing the mercies and the long suffering of the Lord, therefore supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Thinks maybe this is where they're going. We already know the people have no mercy. What did we just read about in the verses before? It's just continual bloodshed and carnage. No mercy whatsoever. But behold, this my joy was in vain, for their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God. Okay, repentance because of the goodness of God. How does that not fit in right with the a concept we've been talking about in terms of what repentance is, right? A recognition of the goodness of God. But it was rather the sorrowing of the damned, because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. Okay, so I see here the opposite, the antithesis of the pure in heart. And then moving on to verse 14, and they did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits, but they did curse God and wish to die. Nevertheless, they would struggle with the sword for their lives. So here at the beginning of verse 14, we have the antithesis of the meek. And then what is the what is the beatitude of the meek? Say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But what happens with these? Well, we, we see that back in verse 8. It's the opposite of inheriting the land, right? They're just being completely destroyed. And that's what's going to happen with this people. They will be completely swept off face of the land because they're going through this process, the anti-beatitude process, where they are completely void of meekness. I don't know what 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 you call it, but here we say that their sorrowing was the sorrowing of the damned because the Lord would not suffer them to take happiness in sin. And then we have the second part of verse 14, nevertheless they would struggle with the sword for their lives. So here I kind of see the antithesis of the peacemaker as we've been discussing about blessed are peacemakers, they shall be called the children of God. Because even though they curse God and wish to die, they still are 
their entire being is wrapped up in this narrative of violence and vengeance. And so they can't do anything but fight with the sword because that's who they are. They're the opposite, the antithesis of peacemakers. Doesn't matter that they want to die. They still just love violence because they that's who they are. That's that's the lifestyle they have completely embraced. And it came to pass that my sorrow did return into me again. And I saw that the day of grace was passed with them, both temporally and spiritually. For I saw thousands of them hewn down in open rebellion against their God and heaped up as dung upon the face of the land. Here we have the fulfillment of the anti-beatitude of blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And thus 340 and 4 years had passed away. And it came to pass that in the 340 and 5th year, the Nephites did begin to flee before the Lamanites, and they were pursued until they came even to the land of Jashon before it was possible to stop them in their retreat. So here we sort of have the Nephites are being persecuted, right? They're being chased by the Lamanites, not just not just a, a war to take over territory, but they're actually being pursued for the sake of destroying the Nephites as such. The Nephites' response to this is not the beatitude response to persecution. And now the city of Jashon was near the land where Ammon had deposited the records unto the Lord. They might not be destroyed. And behold, I had gone according to the word of Ammon and taken the plates of Nephi and did make a record according to the words of Ammon. And upon the plates of Nephi, I did make a full record of the wickedness and abominations. But upon these plates, I did forbear to make a full account of their wickedness and abominations. For behold, a continual scene of wickedness and abominations has been before mine eyes ever since I have been sufficient to behold the ways of man. Here we have what uh, I would say is sort of the anti-beatitude of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Rather, they hunger and thirst after the blood of their enemies and after wickedness and abomination. And woe is me because of their wickedness, for my heart has been filled with sorrow because of their wickedness all my days. Nevertheless, I know that I shall be lifted up the last day. And here we have the antithesis of the great joy that Christ tells us we should have when we are persecuted for righteousness sake. Going through this, I just thought it was just so fascinating to me and so interesting that we have a people where, as Mormon is describing them, it almost perfectly fits in. I mean, there, there may be some bits and pieces here missing that, that don't quite match up, but it really fits so well with sort of a pattern of, of what I would call, like I said, anti-beatitude here. And all it is is simply a description of this people's descent into wickedness, and it follows the same pattern. <laughs> I, I just kind of want to be done with that. <laughs> That's so good. I like that so much. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it does seem to fit. I'm going through here, and yeah, there's a, you know even being an open rebellion against God. You know, to be blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But these people are in right. absolute rebellion against God. Being poor in spirit, we talk about as that emptying. It's the same. You know, baptism is the symbol of being poor in spirit. That's why Christ commands us to be baptized. That's the first thing. He's like, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. That, that's synonymous with being poor in spirit. It's repentance is seeing God new, and you can't be someone new. And it, Once you repent, the old you is dead. It, you can't resurrect the old person because the old person is dead and gone because you'll never be that person again. You're coming into this new life. And so whenever we see repentance or baptism, uh, it's the same thing as being poor in spirit. So yeah, I love... I love this verse 13, but behold, this my joy was in vain, for their sorrowing was not into being poor in spirit. 
It was not into baptism. It wasn't all these things. So you, so you see the goodness of God. I'm just repeating what you already said, just because it's so good. But it was rather the sorrowing of the damned. So yeah, it's it's we can go through sorrowing because of our sin. I've gone through and spent quite a bit of time researching on like the citation index, the LDS citation index, talks from general authorities about the scripture about mourning. You know, mourning is a very interesting concept because it's an emotion that we really don't like. It's considered a negative emotion. Nobody really likes to mourn, right? <laughs> That's why they call it mourning. But there is this this interesting idea that as I was researching all of the talks, almost inevitably, I'd say probably 90% of the time, mourning is attributed simply to an act of sin. That you've sinned and now you're mourning because wickedness never was happiness. And you're just a sinner and so sinning leads you to mourning. But I think there's actually, and I was just reading an article about it from one of my favorite Facebook groups, but they talked about what they call sacred sadness. And that was the first time I'd heard it put that way, sacred sadness, where there is a type of sadness that just comes along that once you've actually let go of that ego, let go of those layers of identity that you just have falsely attributed to yourself, what you know Thomas Merton calls that false self, and you let that go, there's that mourning period, not necessarily because you've done anything wrong, but it's just, it's alleviating those burdens that you had before. And so there's this, this moment of just being in mourning. Not necessarily because you've actively done anything. And so that's one of the things I think in our culture, maybe we could do better in. In fact, I know we could do better in, into recognizing that sadness is not just because something bad or that something that sin happened. Because a lot of the times we think that because I'm sorrowing, because I'm sad, because something is not right, it must be because I've sinned. I did something wrong. Yeah. Because if you were doing everything right, then you should be happy, that you should be joyful or elated. And so that when we feel sadness, it's often attributed, well, you must be doing something wrong. And so then we enter into this kind of checklist gospel kind of thing. Well, I'm just going to start going down checklist. You know, I'm going to pray, make sure I read my scriptures. And so we just end up in like a life of checklists. And for me personally... I found that the checklist gospel left me completely flat. Like it, it failed me in every way. Sure, I was striving physically and, and so there was like this, this external goodness that I was exuding, but internally I was never at peace. I was never actually just at rest with God in it. Because I was always chasing some, you know, if I'm not happy one day, maybe I just need to get up and do, you know, I need to do these five things and maybe I'm not praying hard enough, or maybe I need to pray three times a day. And if I'm not happy, maybe I need to pray four times a day or, you know, I only read scriptures for 20 minutes. If I would have read scriptures for 30 minutes, I would have been happier. And so this checklist gospel ends up throwing us into this way of being that's really sometimes not very helpful. Now, I realize there's a lot of people who do well having a structured, organized life where they they do value having kind of a systematic way of doing things. And that's not what I'm talking about. There are certain personalities that like to go through and have a certain regimen, and that really feels good for them in their relationship with God. And it actually is holistically good. What I'm talking about is more of this culture where that's how we preach just God in general, that you just have to do all these things. Because I know so many people who food this falls flat for. And it's not to say that that's a bad way of doing it, so long as to say there are so many other ways of doing it as well for those who that doesn't, who that doesn't work for. And so in this way to come into a relationship with God where we can just be with God. And we don't have to feel like we have to qualify for anything. We, and we can just be there. And that's why I really love this because of the goodness of God. 
not because you had to qualify for it, not because you had to work for it, not because you had to, you had to, you know, pay God off to love you, but just because of the goodness of God. And so sin really becomes just the actions of working against who we already are. And so, and so I've had this statement that I've said for a few times, and I know it's been misunderstood when I've said it, because it does run a little bit counterculture of how we particularly view things. But when I've said we are always already worthy, you know, I have a lot of people who are like, well, that's just core horror's doctrine. You know, you, you never have any <laughs> sin. You don't have to repent on anything. And, and I'm like, okay, well, here, here's the biggest difference. Core horror preached that, you, you know, he flattered the people into believing that there was no Christ. Basically, by kind of taking the inverse of his argument by saying, listen, you believe in a Christ who came to atone for you, and that belief inherently means that you're not good enough, that you sinned, you did something bad, so you need someone to come in to make you okay. And so if you get rid of the idea of Christ, this idea of Christ is the thing that's making you feel like you're unworthy. When in reality, for me, we are always already worthy Christ in repentance is simply awakening to that new view of realizing who and what we already are. Sin becomes the act of living in our false self. We're consciously living in a false narrative and a false idea of who and what we are, and that leads to actions that are counter our true nature and identity and worthiness. We are always already children of God. Repentance is learning to see God new and ourselves new and each other new as what we already are. That's one of the things that I, I see is so interesting here in how Mormon puts it, that the perceptions of the people in the false anti-beatitude, as, as you said, Ben, that they would rather the sorrowing of the damned because the Lord, the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. I think it's interesting how we're now blaming God for, for them not to feel happiness in sin, right? right? right. Like it was God who was allowing them to be happy in sin. Right. Yeah, Mormon's <laughs> describing their perception here, which is so fascinating in terms of the repentance thing. But yes. Yeah. And so it's just... Now it's God's fault that we're sad. You know? That's right. And you can start to see the people here about why they're coming out in open rebellion against God. Because if you're going through like, you know, the Lamanites just killed my son. Does God expect me to just sit idly by and just let me roll over and just take that and not go avenge him because of that grave injustice? How is God going to possibly not allow me to go do that? Begin to see that they're taking their pain and their suffering and the identities that have accumulated and they're not surrendering it. They're not turning it over to God. They're not re repenting and seeing God in this new true way. They're doubling down on that narrative and they're, they're holding on to their pain. Just, just like what we talked about with the Cain narrative. Cain never speaks his trauma. He doubles down on it and doubling down on that pain of that, that was caused by acting outside of your humanity became his curse. And then we literally see the people here because they are not alleviating and letting go of that pain to God. They're holding on to that pain. And that's also partaking, at least in part, of that curse. Well, I really like what you were saying about sacred sadness and, and where it went. I like that that term, sacred sadness. I've, I've talked about it in different ways, but that kind of really makes it, it's a concise description. So I like that. And we talked about, I think it was last time, you know, Christ saying he sorrowed for the sins of the world and saying that the three Nephites wouldn't feel sorrow except for the sins of the world. And so, you know, being in a terrestrial or celestial state does not rid us of sorrow. It's not meant to. That's a sorrow is part of our existence as beings and it's part of God's existence as well. I will sometimes say, you know, Christ describes himself as having a fullness of joy. And I think that in terms of opposition in all things, 
Our fullness of joy can only come when we have also realized a fullness of sorrow in the same sense. Our capacity for joy and our capacity for sorrow are there. Doctrine and Covenants section 132 alludes to this when it says that we will inherit all heights and depths. I think the idea you were talking about how if you know, we just live the gospel, then we'll just be happy all the time is kind of akin to a prosperity gospel, right? But just in an emotional way. It's an emotional prosperity gospel. Just living in a certain way means that we'll always be happy. And then if we're sad, that's because we're doing something wrong. I think that is just a lie. That sadness can come from so many different things, and it's actually a part of our experience and who we are. And so in that sense, in that sense, because it's part of who we are and who God is, it's good. And so I like the term sacred sadness, pinpoint it, so to speak. When I read that article, and maybe I can I'll link to it here below in the comments, it, yeah, it really changed my my view. I'd never heard that kind of context and that that phrase before as well, and it really did hit home. I think far too often we we throw too many narratives, negative narratives, onto sorrow and sadness. We don't want to feel this emotion. We never sit with this, and by sitting with it, I don't mean to just roll around in the mud with it. But to yeah, really not wallow in it, <laughs> yeah, we're not wallowing in our sadness. But there is an there's a certain amount of just recognizing what it is there and what is present, being there and sitting with that emotion without judgment and without story, without narrative, without expectation of anything else, and just being there in that moment in the experience of it. I'm the first to say that my experimentations with my first experimentations with sitting with sorrow were complete and utter failures because I'm like, what, what, what is this crap I'm doing? I, it was, it was not, it was not, I would not gauge it as success, but then again, that's my judgment coming into what is successful and what isn't successful. But over time, I recognize that in those moments when I am able to simply be there and sit with it. With And just like you said, Ben, there are so many different causes of sorrow. Maybe it's sorrow because someone has passed away. There's no sin involved there, right? There are sorrows that we feel that are outside the context of sin. And in the sorrow, just to be there with it. And I love what you said about the heights and the depths. I see God not in the duality of thing, but that sorrow is a unity with, with joy. And that they work together, not as opposites, but at, and not even at, at opposite ends of the same spectrum. It's not like there's some kind of dichotomy here, but there is just this human experience that we have of, of emotions and of, I don't want to just leave it at emotions because emotionalism in our context of the, you know, as Americans and as, as Westerners who have inherited Western civilization, especially from the age of enlightenment, man, we really value rationalism, don't we? And we decry emotionalism and, and, you know, emotionalism, you can't make public policy based on emotionalisms and, and, you know, emotional appeal to emotional appeals and fallacies. Okay, sure. But there's a certain time we got to get back to realizing that the experiences we have with these emotions. And so we're coming back here to the text with these, with this morning to realize that there is a type of mourning and lamentation that comes along when, and this is what I taught a lot of my seminary class a bunch of years. It was a simple equation that a lot of emotions like anger and hatred and frustration, and it's really an, an easy equation. It's just that we expected or thought that X was going to be the case and Y happened. We expected X and we got Y. And that 
juxtaposition in our lives when we feel so attached to that X, whatever that is in our lives, and something else happens. You know, we try to attach meanings to it and we try to ascribe suffering sacrifice narratives to it a lot of the times. But this is really the cause for anger. We think that something X should have been the case, but something Y happened. Once we get to a place where we just are able to accept that reality is reality, that things happen as they happen, and then just to live in the present and proceed forward from there, at least as I've experimented with that in my life, man, the anxiety has gone away. I mean, I, I've carried a lot of anxiety in my life. Moments of depression, moments of just feeling completely and utterly overwhelmed, moments in my life when I really had strong hopes and expectations that X would happen, and then, man, life hit me with Y, and it crippled me. And it, I, I really had to go back and refocus in on my narratives of realizing, like, what's really going on? You know, life is just life. But it was my expectations. So when you see them here, they're expecting their, whatever their repentance, whatever their repentance process is, <laughs> I don't know what, you know, they're calling on God or something and they're not finding joy. They're, they're not finding a release. They're not finding a, you know, anything to be filled with anything because they are just doubling down on their own narratives and trying to shove God in a box in their own narratives. And I really do think God's too big to be shoved in any box. In my life right now, I'm trying to pull God out of as many boxes I've tried to shove him into. So just like let God loose and, and let God be God and let that be whatever it's going to be. But it doesn't look like the Nephites are doing that. The Nephites here are really trying to shove him into their box, into their, their perceptions, their world, their identity, their ego. And it's not God's fault. It's not <laughs> God's allowing them to be one thing or another. Well, it's about control, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a that's an interesting way. Trying to control God through your ideas of him. Yeah. Thinking about emotionalism and, and our discussion of sadness and, and joy and so forth. You know, the idea came to me that in terms of rationalism and emotionalism, when we talk about the value of, of sorrow and stuff, we're not trying to make an argument based on the emotion. Or we're not trying to make an argument with the emotion. We're trying to make an argument for the emotion. Like that it's a good thing to experience because it's part of being human. <laughs> right. So, uh we're we're not yeah, we're not trying to use the emotion as leverage to say because basically what emotionalism says is that people shouldn't have to feel x. They shouldn't have to feel sadness. So therefore we need to do xyz to prevent people from feeling sadness, right? And so it's actually the opposite of what we're talking about. In, in those terms. So moving into chapter three here, we, we have this great destruction of the Nephites. They, they basically lose half of their lands. And then we get 10 years of, I don't know, it, he doesn't even call it peace. It just means that the Lamanites haven't come out to battle against them. Here we have some evidence of what we were talking about earlier with him sort of patterning this war and his efforts as the commander the chief captain, so to speak, after Captain Moroni. And so here he's employing the people, the Nephites, for these 10 years in preparing their lands and their arms against the time of battle because he knows that, that this is coming. And in verse 2, And it came to pass, the Lord did say unto me, Cry unto this people, Repent ye, and come unto me, and be ye baptized, and build up again my church, and ye shall be spared. This uh, harkens back a little bit to Captain Moroni in terms of, you know, he prepares the people, but then he says that he prepares their hearts and minds and, and crying repentance unto them. 
And I did cry unto this people, but it was in vain. And they did not realize that it was the Lord that had spared them and granted unto them a chance for repentance. And behold, they did harden their hearts against the Lord their God. Wow, so much tied up here in this phrase. It was the Lord that had spared them and granted unto them a chance for repentance. People are completely wicked. We just talked about in chapter 2 that they've just completely descended into total abject depravity. Mormon himself says the day of their grace has passed. I don't have any hope for them. And yet the Lord, the Lord doesn't see it that way. He tells Mormon to go cry repentance to them. And he says that he spares them to grant them a chance for repentance, a chance that they might see him in a different way. And they harden their hearts. Why would the Lord, knowing that the people would reject, still tell Mormon to preach to them? And I think we could have a discussion about this for hours. But I think this part of this, at least, goes back to the doctrine of perhaps. And then the other part, it made me think of an essay that I read years ago, and I and, and then I've listened to the audio version of it multiple times. You'll find it if you Google search Isaiah's job. Have you ever listened to that one? No, I haven't. Okay, so Isaiah's job. And it's a fascinating little essay, almost just like a, a sort of a, a literary slash historical, philosophical, philosophical is the word, <laughs> treatment of a few verses out of Isaiah, where the Lord tells Isaiah to go preach to the people and then basically says, but they're not going to listen to you. It won't do any good. <laughs> and, and so it's like, well, why would anyway. the Lord tell him to do that? And then later the Lord says, because there are going to be a few people who, even though they won't repent, then when everything goes to pot, <laughs> they're going to remember what you said. And they're the ones that are going to, you know, build things back up and bring everything back together. I wonder if from Mormon's perspective, all of the people are completely destroyed. But wouldn't it be interesting to know if at this time there was one person who heard what Mormon was saying, listened to him and repented, and the Lord led him and his family away somewhere else? I mean, wouldn't that fit a pattern? And I, I, I don't know that that happened. This is just complete <laughs> out of the year, but it would certainly fit a scriptural pattern. And it would certainly fit along with, uh, let's say, Abinadi. You know, Abinadi doesn't even know that his words have any effect on the people. The Lord doesn't promise him that they will. And he goes to his death testifying of the truth. And yet there's one person that listens, Alma. He runs away and then is led away by the Lord with his people and so forth. So I just wonder, you know, we, we look at here and says the people don't listen to him, but that's from Mormon's perspective. You know, the people didn't, didn't listen to anything. What if there was one person, then everything that Mormon did to preach to them was worth it, right? Yeah, that's really interesting too, because, you know, when you have later on when Moroni is saying that the Lamanites seek to put to death anyone who will not deny the Christ, and I will not deny the Christ. And so it, it kind of gives this idea, if we really think about it, that there are groups of people who believe in Christ and maybe some of them are denying and some of them aren't. And so if they're out there searching for people. Something maybe somewhere in the smallest little corner is being preserved somewhere. And 
those people needed to hear Mormon speak. They needed that. Yeah. Yeah, that would be fascinating to figure out if that happened. That's It's a beautiful way of looking at it. First off, we're not getting the full record from Mormon. I, I don't know how many times he's gone out to oh, preach. Not close. I, you yeah, know, not even close, right? How many times have we heard? We can't include a hundredth of the thing that's ever been. Just to be able to recognize that it was at this particular time, the Lord is once again reaching out. I want you to see me different even if there isn't anyone out there who listened to him. And I, I, I like to think that there would. I've never thought of that. I'm going to write that in my margin. <laughs> but even if, and I like that doctrine of perhaps that you brought up, that even if just perhaps, how many times has God come to me in moments and has impressed upon me and has brought the Holy Ghost to give me impressions? And how often have I ignored that? I'm reminded of a, of a story. When I went on my mission, my missionary trainer, he's such a such a good, good guy. And I, I love Elder Lambeth until, until the day I die. When we got out there, my trainer had said, listen, Elder Logan, if you have any impressions, any thoughts, any, anything at all that comes up, if you feel like we need to go talk with a person on the opposite end, we happen to be walking by a park. And he pointed across the park. If you feel impressed to go over there and to talk with a person, you just tell me and we will literally drop anything we're doing to follow a prompting you have. I've loved this story, this moment from my companion. And I said, okay. And he says, because what I want to make sure we know is that when I got out here, my trainer was... He was done. He was burnt. He was burnt out. And he goes, he was crispy burnt. I remember crispy burnt. <laughs> he is so done. And in this story, he says, I was like, let's go out and work. My companion, my trainer, the guy who's supposed to be training me, he was laying on the couch. And he's like, yeah, you know, you know that feeling that tells you that we should go out and work? Just ignore it. It goes away. <laughs> <laughs> and so yep. it does, right? But the spirit knowing whether or not you're going to listen to it or not is still there nonetheless. Even if you don't listen, you know, you could be Jonah running away. The spirit came and you're like, no. And the spirit come again, and you're like, no. And you run away. And, you know, whether real or metaphorically, you spend three days in a, in a fish's belly. God is always going to be there to reclaim his people. And that simple fact alone tells me that the judgment of God, as we currently understand it, is a wrathful, vengeful, spiteful, destructive God, is incorrect. Because I can't imagine such a black and white God that will, that will be, come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me, see me differently, I beg you to see me differently, and then be like, alright, screw you, and then pound you into oblivion. And then God's justice come out and destroy everybody. I just... I can't do that anymore. I've done that for a good solid portion of my life and tried to dance around that. And I've tried to read people who explained that. And I've lit, I mean, I've read Nibley. I've read so many different people who tried to explain these kinds of things. And all of those discussions completely fall flat. But the minute that I re, I just say, you know what? God's nature is he's loving. He's coming after us. He's trying to get us to come back. And then when I posit that it's us that sees God how we are. And if we're wrathful, if we're judgmental, if we are violent, if we're that kind of person, that's how we're going to see God. And then all of a sudden, everything in the scriptures makes sense. Because all of a sudden you see all the people who are talking about this are living in that context, they're living in that world, they're seeing these things. There's that book by Brad Jurisak that I brought up before that specifically talks about the wrath of God. And that when we see wrath and God's wrath, 
it's not that God is a proactive, violent, coming after you in wrathful, you know, anger, as it were. Wrath is just another word for allow. That God's coming in and he's allowing things to be what they are. We allow God to be what God is, and God allows reality to be what reality is. That's a lot of what I see there. So when I see that God's coming in yet again, knowing, knowing that they're not going to repent, why is God toying with the people? If he sees right here, right then, that they're already not going to repent, why is God not destroying them right then and there? Why is he toying with them and then carrying this out for another year or two? Why? If they're going to be destroyed, just get it over with. But he's not. He's still seeking to reclaim them. Maybe there's some people who were saved. Maybe there weren't. Regardless, he's there trying to reclaim them. That's the God that I see. Because that's who he is. He can't be anything else but. Mormon, you know, really gets into a lamentation here that if you listen to the app, you feel more what Mormon is experiencing here. It says, they did swear by the heavens, this is verse 10 of chapter 3, and also by the throne of God, that they would go up to battle against their enemies and would cut them off from the face of the land. Okay, so this goes right back to what you were talking about in terms of their view of God. And because they viewed God as a God who is capable and willing of doing these things, then what do they do? They swear by the heavens and by his throne that they'll go up to battle against their enemies. They are going to be the hand of God to cut their enemies off from the face of the land. This harkens right back to the anti-beatitude of the meek inheriting the earth, right? And the peacemakers being called the children of God. And this is just the antithesis of that. When we talked about in the war chapters, we talked about weapons being named after peacemakers, right? Peacemakers because they just destroy everyone. They just kill everyone and then there's peace. That's the anti-beatitude I see in that. Verse 11. And it came to pass that I, Mormon, did utterly refuse from this time forth to be a commander and a leader of this people because of their wickedness and abomination. Behold, I had led them. Notwithstanding their wickedness, I had led them many times to battle and had loved them according to the love of God which was in me with all my heart. And my soul had been poured out in prayer unto God all the day long for them. Nevertheless, it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. I've tried to ponder on this, and I'm not sure that I've quite grasped uh, what Mormon means here, really. I mean, I, I can sort of come up with some surface stuff, but I feel like there's something deeper I'm not quite getting at. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on it, where he says, nevertheless, it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. I don't really know what, what he means. <laughs> As I was reading through it this time, just the thought came out is that faith to be faith is based in reality. As he's talking about here and he's seen them coming out to battle, he's loved them. And, and I love that because I loved them according to the love of God, which was in me with all of my heart. Man, that's sad. I mean, that, I mean, that makes me really happy that he has, but his, yeah, the lamentation, as you said, I led them notwithstanding their wickedness. I led them many times to battle and I loved them according to the love of God, which was in me with, with all of my heart and my soul. I poured out in prayer into my God all the day for them. Nevertheless, it was without faith. You talk about this faith, about it being that core driving but faith is also based in reality. It's ba- it, That's why we have faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we don't have faith in things that aren't real. That's, you know, we wouldn't say that's real faith. 
faith is based in the, in the absolute. And so he's, yeah. I think, I think it's a poetic way. I think it's a, a kind of a literary way of being able to say, listen, I did all of these things, but I knew the outcome. I, like, I really knew the outcome. I, I really knew what was going to happen because you can't live the way you're living and be successful with it. And so I loved you and I did this and I served you, but what I was doing for you was never going to change you. I've truly, truly loved you. And I truly, truly served you. And I did my best before God I did, but I knew it wasn't actually going to change anything. Hmm. That's what I got out of it. And thrice have I delivered them out of the hands of their enemies, and they have repented not of their sins. You know, there's... um, (laughs) I I don't know. Maybe this is a, a little harsh on Mormon here, but this reminds me a little bit of uh, what I believe Neil A. Maxwell referred to as Moses's pronoun problem, where Moses <laughs> says that um, he provided, or we, I think maybe he says, we provide water for the Israelites and, and is later, it's not you doing it, Moses. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I don't know if Mormon has a little pronoun problem here or not. He says, thrice, I have delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. When in verse three back verse three it says the lord had spared them anyway i just thought that was kind of interesting i think what he's saying is you know i would think that after all that i have been able to do for them that i would at least have some credibility in their eyes that they might listen to me you know i i told them if we if we do the battle in this way you know we won't all die and it works out maybe that would at least humble them somewhat that they could listen to what i'm saying but they won't And when they had sworn by all that had been forbidden them by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that they would go up unto their enemies to battle and avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren, behold, the voice of the Lord came unto me, saying, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And because this people repented not after I had delivered them, behold, they shall be cut off from the face of the earth. Referencing, again, to me, that beatitude of meekness and inheriting the earth. And it came to pass that I utterly refused to go up against mine enemies, and I did even as the Lord had commanded me. And I did stand as an idle witness to manifest unto the world the things which I saw and heard, according to the manifestations of the Spirit which had testified of things to come. This is a little bit reminiscent of Alma, and then later Nephi, who leaves the political to just stick with the, the ministerial you know, not seeing that he can accomplish anything in the political or in this sense, you know, Mormon being the, the commander and saying he would stand as an idle witness. Alma says, uh, bear down in pure testimony, you know, a similar type of, of thought, uh, I believe. Therefore, I write unto you, Gentiles, and also unto you, house of Israel, when the work shall commence, that ye shall be about to prepare to return to the land of your inheritance. Yea, behold, I write unto all ends of the earth, yea, unto you, twelve tribes of Israel, who shall be judged according to your works by the twelve whom Jesus chose to be his disciples in the land of Jerusalem. I see their inheritance again, right? Him talking about the consequences of, of what happened with this people, that they lost their inheritance, and that this is sort of this cautionary tale, so to speak, right? Therefore, I write unto you Gentiles, hey, don't let this same thing happen to you. Yeah, I also think it's fascinating there in verses 10 and 14 that the thing that Mormon is really kicking back on, 
has to do with what the Lord told him in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. That whole swearing by the heavens. Right. And, and also by the throne of God. That's a Sermon on the Mount thing. And then also how they treat their enemies. You know, would you go up to battle against their enemies? And when they had sworn by all that had been forbidden by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that they would go up unto their enemies to battle. This is all sermon talk. You know, the whole vengeance is mine. I also think there's a lot of, of Mormon's growth that we see here in chapter three, because I'm seeing in verse one through three, there's there's like this epistemic mapping where he's he's really trying to figure out how he's preaching and the people are receiving it. And he testifies, but no one's listening. And the people begin to boast in their own strength. Kind of a continuation, I think, maybe of even chapter two and then anti-beatitude. Then Mormon shifts. And it's like Mormon now knows you know, the methodology of God and that there's a fallout that's going to be able to occur and to be able to give us, uh, he gives up his own personal bias as, a, as it were. And he's, you know, he's talking about here as a without his faith. And, you know, if that, if that holds true. Um, that interpretation, but that now he's sitting down here to warn us. He's like, listen, this is what I went out to do. This is what I saw. This is how this all worked out. And so it's like 17 through the end of the verse here is really just saying, listen, now I know more surely what this is going to be for you. So yeah, when I see 17 coming down here and he says, you know, why does he even tell us all of this in verse 20? And for this cause, I write to you that ye may know that ye must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every soul who belongeth to the whole human family of Adam, and you must be judged of your works, whether they be good or evil. And also that ye may believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, which ye shall have among you. And also that the Jews, the covenant people of the Lord shall have other witnesses besides him, who they saw and heard, and Jesus, who they slew, was the very Christ and the very God. And I would that I could persuade all ye ends of the earth to repent and prepare to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a worthy reason to write. And for him to be able to see, he's seeing the physical destruction of his people. And here he's largely talking about what he's seeing as the spiritual destruction of the people. You know, he's like, let's, let's, the flesh is going to come and go. But let's really try to look at, you know, the spiritual nature. And so he begins to see final thing by being able to stand before judgment bar of God, not necessarily the judgment bar of physical death, but of God himself. You know, I see a bit of a theme and I, I, I'd be interested. I need to go and see if I can find this among other prophets, but I see it at least three. So here in verse 22, Mormon chapter three, verse 22, I'm going to read it again because I, I think it's, it's beautiful. And I would that I could persuade all ye ends of the earth to repent and prepare to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I love how repent and prepare are there together because repenting, us changing our view of God actually prepares us to be, to stand before the judgment seat of Christ because now we we are viewing him as he is, as he truly is. And no longer are we dreading coming to the judgment seat of Christ, but we that's a moment of rejoicing, right? Because we're coming to our merciful Savior and our Creator who's there. There's a footnote to Alma 29.1 here, and this is Alma's, Oh, that I were an angel. Alma says, Oh, that I were an angel and could have the wish of my heart that I might go forth and speak into the with the trump of God, with a voice to shake the earth and cry repentance unto every people. It reminded me of a verse. I had to go search this the other day in Second um, Nephi 33. So these are the last words of Nephi. Second Nephi chapter 33, verse 12. And I pray the Father in the name of Christ that many of us, if not all, may be saved in his kingdom at that great and last day. I'll be interested to see if I can find this among other prophets, but there seems to be this theme here of these prophets 
when they're writing and knowing who this is eventually going to go to, that they have this sincere desire that they might tell every single person in the world of the salvation of Christ, that they might bring everyone to him. And Nephi literally says he hopes that every single person can be saved in the kingdom of God. There's nothing limiting about the atonement that says that not every single child of God can receive all the blessings that he wants for them. There's nothing about the atonement that says, well, you know, it's only going to cover a couple million people, so the rest of you, too bad. <laughs> right. And I, I, I love what Nephi says there, and it kind of goes along with these other prophets, how they're talking about how they want everybody to receive this message. The implication is that everybody could accept it. And Nephi says, if not all, which I think is just a fascinating little window into Nephi's feelings towards the end of his life in knowing that might potentially be a possibility of saving everyone. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I love that. I love the mercy of reclamation of seeking to bring everyone back in. It's it's not even for themselves. It's There's no selfish, I need to be saved. It's this understanding that once you come into that relationship with God where you are now enveloped in all that God has and the desire to bring everybody into that. I think that's absolutely beautiful. Moving into chapter four, we have this continuation again with the war. It's going to keep on going on until chapter six. But the very famous chapter or verse five, we use that we talk about this quite a bit uh, in different contexts with war. Well, I guess with with verse four, and, and was because of the armies of the Nephites went up to the Lamanites, they began to be smitten. For were it not for that, the Lamanites could have had no power over them. You know, so this goes back to that whole Gidgadoni story where the Nephites aggressive wanted to go up, yeah. yeah, aggressive warfare that they wanted to go up to a kind of proactively attack that the the best defense is a proactive offense. But we're specifically told yet again, even from Third Nephi chapter three with Gidgadoni, that it was because the armies of the Nephites went up into the Lamanites that they began to be smitten for were it not for that the Lamanites could have had no power over them. That's a that's a harrowing uh, realization to have made. After the fact. And then verse 5, But behold, the judgments of God will overtake the wicked, and it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. For it is the wicked that stir up the hearts of the children of men into bloodshed. Wow. You know, Hugh Nibley talks about this in conjunction with the Nephite cause, or the Nephite uh, belief of war that was mentioned in Alma chapter 4, where, I think it's verse 4, chapter 4, verse 2 or 3, where the Nephites believed that war was... God's basic proactiveness in getting them to repent. Now, I, I don't necessarily believe the same thing as the Nephites. I don't think God's like pre giving them war so that they'll repent. Right, but the point is that's what the Nephites believed. And that's so right. they acted accordingly. Yeah. That's right. So that's what the Nephites believe though. And that's how they're, they acted. And so we have to see how they are acting according to their own beliefs and their own views of God. When we see this, that the wicked are destroying the wicked. I think of Christ. Those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Now, this gets into some New Testament uh, theology when in Luke, the Lord tells Peter to go buy, sell his coat and go buy a, a sword. So he goes out, he's able to buy two swords. He comes back and the Lord says that's sufficient. But the scripture actually says that he tells Peter to go out and buy the swords so that he can fulfill the scripture that he'll be found with the transgressors. 
that and it's a prophecy in Isaiah. So when the time comes that we know that Peter has a sword, and there's at least one other sword floating out there at the twelve. Now I don't know what kind of revolution or what kind of manifest defense that they thought they were going to wage in defense of Jesus. You know, Jesus had already told Peter when Peter had come up to say that he'll defend and he'll keep Christ from the cross. Jesus had already turned to Peter and said, get thou behind me, Satan. So we already know that that kind of defense of, of those who take upon themselves the name of Christ is not the point. But when Christ ends up telling Peter there in the Garden of Gethsemane, after Peter's lopped off the ear of the servant and Christ has healed the servant, yeah, I can almost look with and see the Savior in some level of exacerbation looking at Peter as if, Peter, I've been with you all of these years. I've been with you this whole time. Don't you get it yet? Mm-hmm. Put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will perish by the sword. I mean, this is really one of the reasons why Peter is my favorite non-Jesus person. So everybody else, <laughs> everybody else but Jesus, right? Like, like Peter's my, my second favorite. There's Jesus and then there's like Peter. And the reason why is because Peter is the one person in the New Testament who is lambasted more than anyone else, right? So Peter walks out on water. He's the only other person documented walking on water. Mm-hmm. And then he starts to sink a little bit. I'm like, all right. So he starts to sink a little bit. I give him some props. He's walking <laughs> on water, right? So he like comes out. He's like, Lord, save me. And like Jesus, Jesus could have said anything. He's like, like way to go, Peter. Good job. You know, he's, he's like, you know, did you see what you just did, dude? No, there, none of that. He's like, oh, you of little faith. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, you know, the whole get thou behind me, Satan thing. And then, you know, Peter, put your sword away. You know, there's this chastisement. And then, you know, Peter denies Christ three times. But then comes the time there after the resurrection. Obviously, when when Jesus comes to Peter and he asks him three times, lovest thou me? And obviously, the three questions has significance in tying into the three times that Peter denied Christ. And Peter's like, of course, you know, I love you. And it gets into this is the true nature of God. This forgiving, it doesn't matter if you've denied, it doesn't matter if you've denied knowing me. I know you love me. And so when I get into this in this verse five, that behold, the judgments of God will overtake the wicked. I look at this judgments here, not as a proactive God going out and orchestrating the people like a chessboard. Wicked people on this side, wicked people on this side, and then God like throwing them together. I see simply God allowing people to be what they're being. And he's always trying to reclaim them. And the wicked will always pick up a sword and they'll always fight because their story of who and what God is lead them into battle. And that's so hard is that when we truly believe that God's leading us into that battle, what Voltaire said, when we believe in absurdities, we'll be bound to commit atrocities. It's the same thing. So much depends upon our idea of God, as Thomas Merton said. But here we have the wicked who obviously, and, and I fully will believe that they're following their own version of God into battle, that if they have a belief in God, even being in an open rebellion against God, that open rebellion is not necessarily in rejecting God or being like an atheist and like believing, not, not believing in a God. But I see more of the Nephites here following after their own version of God. The one that wouldn't allow the Lamanites to go unpunished so that, so that God is their victor and is going to defend them, is going to be there for them. But as we get into chapter six here soon, we're going to see the terror that grips the Nephites and juxtapose that with the previous story that we've talked about in the same story. But yeah, in this, I very much see we lead ourselves into our own moments of war and fear and this whole punishment of the wicked. 
That's not God's doing. That's ours. There's uh, several times throughout these chapters. I mean, after seeing the pattern of chapter two, I'm now seeing like throughout these chapters, there's all kinds of descriptions of Mormon that that really pull from Christ's teachings and then display here the antithesis, right, of what Christ taught that's among the people. One of these things that, that stood out to me is down in verse 11 of chapter 4, and it says, And it is impossible for the tongue to describe, or for man to write a perfect description. And that's almost the same words that we used back in Third Nephi when we were talking about the miracles and things that Christ did and people experienced, right? But here it's going to get applied in the complete opposite way. Impossible for the tongue to describe or for man to write a perfect description of the horrible scene of the blood and carnage which was among the people, both the Nephites and the Lamanites. And every heart was hardened so that they delighted in the shedding of blood continually. And never had been so great wickedness among all the children of Lehi, or even among all the house of Israel, according to the words of the Lord, as was among this people. That verse there is right the antithesis of what we saw in 4th Nephi, where it says never could there have been a people that was more blessed, happier um, among all the people in the world and the history of the people of Nephi. So anyway, we just have all of these little things here where it's just showing that this people has turned complete opposite of what they were before. Later, when we get here into chapter 5, we have another little bit. Chapter 5, verse 6. This is really leading up to the final closing moments of the destruction of the Nephites. Verse 6 of chapter 5, And it came to pass that in the 380th year the Lamanites did come again against us to battle, and we did stand against them boldly, but it was all in vain. For so great were their numbers that they did tread the people of the Nephites under their feet. Uh, to me, that's the same wording when Christ talks about the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its savor, what will it be good for? Will it be cast out and trodden underfoot of men? I see Mormon pulling that imagery into this here and saying, you know, what he saw seems to to go back to what Christ was warning the people about in terms of when they depart from him, then this is the direction that they're going to head and go. So anyway, I was just picking out all kinds of little things in here where, where Mormon really is lacing his story as he's sort of lamenting the state of this people and in contrast to what we just read about uh, in 3rd Nephi and 4th Nephi as well. Yeah, that's great. In verse 5, we have Mormon coming back to repent, to repent and to defend his people again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I did... And, And I did go forth among the Nephites, he says in verse 1, and did repent of the oath which I had made, that I would no more assist them. And they gave me command again of their armies, for they looked upon me as though I could deliver them from their afflictions. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel so bad laughing at that, but I can imagine there's a certain amount of irony here in him writing this, in that, for they did look as though I could deliver them from their afflictions after everything yeah. that he's already written, right? And and that's where a little bit of almost like humor comes into this. And, you know, the repentance also here, it, there's been a lot of discussion about it, and I don't know if there's actually a firm reason given for it. Uh, there's never one that I've really ever landed on that I've really liked, and there's a lot of different uh, theories out there. Repent of the oath. That's the one that I've landed on the most that uh, that resonates the most with me just because of the Nephites and how much they valued the oath 
that him to repent of the oath shows that that oath, you know, it's not that he's repenting before God, that the word repentance is he's beginning to reevaluate different context. Here. Different yeah. context. yeah, he's he's coming to that oath, the, the Nephite cultural traditional concept of that, and he's repenting of that cultural context changing of what he- mind. Yeah, he's changing his mind. So it's not as though I think there is a divine mandate here that there is some kind of revelatory thing in this. Because in verse 2, Behold, I was without hope, for I knew the judgments of the Lord would soon come upon them, for they were repented not of their iniquities, but did struggle for their lives without calling upon them that without calling upon that being who created them. I would say as well, verse 1 isn't saying that he, any sort of revelatory inspiration here, that he go and lead the Nephites again. In fact, I, I wonder, you know, I don't know what's going on with Mormon here because Back in chapter 3, verse 16, it says, I did even as the Lord commanded me, and I did stand as an idle witness and manifest into the world the things which I had saw and heard. And this is in the context of him leaving, refusing to lead the Nephites anymore. So I don't know what's going on in chapter 5, verse 1. It's possible that the Mormon's doing something here that the Lord told him not to do. I can't make that judgment, but I certainly could say, you know, there's no evidence here that he's doing it out of revelation. Going back to chapter four, there were two different cases where the Nephites had experiences where the Lamanites had captured their wives and their their children yeah. and were sacrificed to idols, which I, I can't even imagine what that kind of terror would be like to be able to be in the context of civilization and war and to see those in which you've loved the most and offered up in those ways. Here we see that they're not calling upon the being who created them. That doesn't mean that they're not calling upon someone, something. You know, maybe there's false gods here. Maybe they're, maybe they've completely turned to where they're simply looking at themselves and they're not uh, going to any kind of divine being. And that is in itself a, a type of, uh, a type of prayer, right? Of just even that egoistic self. A type of really, idolatry. Yeah, type of idolatry. <laughs> yeah, there we go. The type of idolatry of, uh, of our own egoistic self. But yeah, to, to recognize that and to bring that into that salt, I really do like th- how you brought that in about the salt trodden under the feet in verse 6. I hadn't pulled that out. And in verse 7, it came to pass that we did again take flight, and those whose flight was swifter than the Lamanites did escape, but those who did not exceed the Lamanites were swept down and destroyed. Man, how terrifying. How absolutely terrifying. Now I, and it's almost at this point, he writes verse seven and he's like, all right, well, I don't want to be too gruesome. He's like, I need to stop because in verse eight, he's like, Hey, I Mormon do not desire to harrow up the souls of men and casting before them. Such an awful scene of blood and carnages was laid before mine eyes. It's kind of too late. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, but I knowing that these things must surely be made known and that all things which are hit up must be revealed upon the housetops. I want to stop there. This whole concept of sins being answered upon the housetops. You know, we've, we've heard these scriptures before. In a lot of ways, we talk about sins being answered upon the housetops and all the hidden things coming to, to light as the wicked finally getting their comeuppance, as the wicked finally getting what they deserved, that everything that they've done in the darkness is finally... And it's, it's this feeling of raw emotional hatred and vitriol into like, finally, they get theirs. Right. But what I've come to see in the scriptures that's far more consistent with the Beatitude and the Sermon on the Mount way of thinking of things, especially going back to the Cain narrative, that all God wanted to do was to get Cain to confess his trauma. Cain just killed Abel. There's no doubt about that. Something bad happened. Sin, a gross sin and iniquity happened. But Cain is not allowing himself to be saved from God. He doubles down. He won't admit his, he won't admit what he's done. He doesn't speak his trauma. Now he's going to suffer 
because of his own actions, because of his own will, that trauma of sin that comes when we act outside of our true self. Here in these ways, when we actually see that these sins now are going to be shouted from the rooftop, what happens to someone who's been hiding an addiction forever and all of a sudden it comes to light? What happens when something's been so hidden for so long and it finally comes open? What happens when Cain's trauma is finally spoken? Things that thrive in the dark die in the light. That's exactly right. Because here all of a sudden we start to realize we are a gospel that believes in proxy work. And how amazing is it if we have a God who goes to such great lengths to speak our trauma and to heal us that he will even go to the lengths of doing it by proxy. That he will get somebody else to be able to shout for somebody else's trauma on the rooftops just to let that sin come out into the open so that now there's nothing to hide from. There's no shame. There's no anything that you have to bury that in deeper anymore. Now it's out and now we can heal. It's almost like it's almost like you chose not to do this. Well, guess what? I'm here to do it for you anyway. Somebody else is going to do it for you. And then we take this story from our egoistic selves that desires justice, just like Cain did, right? Cain's standing there before God, and he's like, because I killed Abel, everybody wants to, they're going to want to kill me back. And God's like, where did you get that idea? I didn't give that idea to you. Nowhere before anything does it say anything like that. But that is, you know, you brought it up, Ben, about justice, so that justice, as we think about it, is usually just a man-made construct. It's, it's our sense of justice. It's the natural man's sense of justice. And you had said it uh, in several podcasts before that Christ suffered for our sense of justice. I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot uh, since then. This concept that we suffer for the other person's sense of justice. And we see this in the Beatitudes, or we see this in the Sermon on the Mount, when Christ says, listen... If you're thrown in jail, don't come out of there until you've paid the utmost farthing. Don't come out until you've paid everything that people think you owe them or that you've, you've said you will owe them. Give everything back. King Lamoni, we see that when he says to Ammon, we'll be the slaves of the Nephites until we've repaid everything back until they feel like they've been satisfied. Now, King Lamoni already knows he's good with God. There's nothing he's got to work out anymore. But he realizes that now there is a type of atoning that you have to do for your fellow man. And he's willing to go there and to atone for their sense of justice. He's already been dealt with with God. Now he's dealing with man's sense of justice. Well, and I like in that context that I wouldn't say so much that Lamoni is saying he needs to atone with his fellow man, but he recognizes an opportunity where he can go to his fellow man and offer the mercy to them in the efforts of reconciling everyone to God. Because he's been reconciled with God, that's just who he is. He's now offering that mercy and allowing that that justice to feed off of the mercy. So Yeah, absolutely. And to counteract that and to juxtapose that, in verse 18, we have now Satan coming out and being identified. But now behold, the people here of the Nephites are led by Satan, even as chaff is driven in the wind as her vessel tossed about by the waves without sail or anchor or without anything whereby to steer her. And even as she is, so they are they. And so, you know, Satan is a great accuser. And when we look at that, they're following Satan, they're, they're following that accusing voice. You can begin to see that just like Cain, they have their pain. They're victims of sin and they have their pain. They've chosen it. They've rebelled. They're in open rebellion. There's no doubt about it, but they're in pain. And God has always tried to reclaim them from that moment. But now they've driven themselves into it. 
and now they're driven about by Satan, and Satan is the great accuser, right? That's is what Satan means in Hebrew, the, the, the accuser. And can you imagine them in the state of accusation against the Lamanites? And that's all that they know. That's all they're living in. The right. hatred that they have for their enemy, that accusing, persecuting mindset of destroying them who've destroyed what you love. There's no love in their heart anymore. There's no God in there more. They will not allow themselves to see God differently and to see themselves differently and to see each other differently. It's an utter refusal for it. They have to seek for their sense of justice because that's the God they believe in. And the God they believe in, in that sense, turns out to be Satan. It's literally the Cain narrative. Cain is serving Satan. He loved Satan. He loved the accuser. He loved to be able to accuse people more than he loved to be reclaimed. The more he wanted to be reconciled with. He valued more that accusing spirit and the blaming and the shaming. And we see that right now with the Nephites. They don't want to see a God of mercy. They don't want to see a God of love and compassion because how dare they even have a moment to be able to say that we should love our enemies after they've killed our wives and our children. That needs to have some kind of justice to it. They need to pay for what they've done. Yeah, that that's contextualized really well by verse 10 and 11. And now behold, this I speak unto their seed and also to the Gentiles who have care for the house of Israel that realize and know from whence their blessings come. I put an exclamation part by that because that was so, so interesting to me that realize and know from whence their blessings come. This isn't saying because they're righteous, they receive the blessings, but because they're righteous, they realize and know where the blessings come from. And that's an additional blessing, just the realization, right? That's the great blessing of, of righteousness is the realization of where the blessings truly come from. Because what does Christ say? You know, God causes the terrain on the just and the wicked alike. God, our father, is seeking to bless all of his children continually. But the great blessing of our righteousness, of righteousness in terms of repenting and seeing God in reality, in the right way, is that we recognize. It says we realize and know from whence their blessings come. So I love that phrase there. In verse 11, For I know that such will sorrow for the calamity of the house of Israel. Yea, they will sorrow for the destruction of this people. They will sorrow that this people had not repented, that they might, there's that doctrine of perhaps, that they might have been clasped in the arms of Jesus. Here's back to our discussion about sacred sorrow, right? I feel like this verse really pins that out because right? it's saying those who are righteous have repented and see God right. And then the very next verse, it says they will sorrow. Well, I thought that the righteous are always supposed to be happy. No, because he writes this for the intent that the righteous will feel sorrow. Well, why would he want that? Because it's an important part of the experience of righteousness. It's an important part of the experience of the Beatitudes, that mourning, that sorrow. Reading this literally helps us have that experience to understand more of what God experiences when he sees the wickedness of his children. I'm going to skip down to verse 14. And behold, they shall go unto the unbelieving of the Jews, and for this intent shall they go, that they may be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God that the Father may bring about through his most beloved, his great and eternal purpose. And that phrase stood out to me, and I'm going to come back to it. His great and eternal purpose. In restoring the Jews, or all the house of Israel, to the land of their inheritance, which the Lord their God hath given them unto the fulfilling of his covenant. 
I had to think about that for a second because I thought it was kind of odd that he would use this phrase, his great and eternal purpose, and then talking about just the Jews in the house of Israel restoring to the land of their inheritance. That sounds like an awfully temporal, worldly thing to be discussing right after you say great and eternal purpose. But then I realized, because in the context of all of Christ talks about in terms of gathering in the house of Israel, that this, the house of Israel, the restoring of the Jews, land over the inheritance, this is the great symbolic gathering or the symbolism of the great gathering of God's children. And this is the symbolism that's used to denote that. And so the great and eternal purpose is what? To bring about the immortality and eternal life of man. The symbol of how that happens scripturally is the restoring of the Jews or all the house of Israel to the land of their inheritance. We can talk about that literally all day long, but what is really happening here in the great eternal purpose is he's talking about bringing all his children back to him. And that, I think, is is a, a fascinating way for the scripture to me exposes that symbol in a way that I hadn't seen it exposed before because it pairs it with that phrase, his great and eternal purpose. No longer are we talking about the restoration of the Jews and the gathering of Israel to the land of their inheritance as this just like, you know, millennial thing or earthly thing. And then when we move on to the next life, celestial kingdom, you know, whatever, that actually is the symbolism of that eternal salvation as we would talk or eternal life. So I anyway, know I thought that was kind of interesting there. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and I never noticed that before. Those the, the great and eternal, the great and eternal purpose of this very few specific little thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> well, obviously that's symbolic because <laughs> that is not his his great and eternal purpose isn't so that some people can live in the land of Israel. I mean, that's I'm sorry, but that's ridiculous. That's not what he's talking about. That is a symbolic representation of what he wants for all of his children and land of inheritance isn't talking about you know we talked about this that was the last time we was time before <laughs> it's not talking about like a literal land right. um, necessarily and you know what if it is a literal land and and you know we, we what what are the what are the critics of of mormonism say you know oh, you're going to get a planet you know and you're going to get your own planet or whatever it's a literal land of our inheritance that's Whatever, that's fine. I think this is speaking symbolically and not literally to <laughs> that that sort of <laughs> folk Mormonism. You know, using all of this and to be able to see the love and compassion in what God is trying to do to reclaim us, as Mormon is really trying to throw all of this together in this beautiful way in chapter five, I, I really do think that really makes chapter six all the more tragic. Yeah. Because now we're in this moment when we're seeing the great gentleness and compassion and love and mercy of God. And, you know, you and I were talking just beforehand, uh, before recording, about verse 7 in chapter 6, verse 7, because Mormon now has written to the king of the Lamanites and he wants to have one last, one last battle. It's like, let's stop doing this, these little things. Let's just have one, let's just have it out. We'll just do it. Yeah. And remember at this time that probably, most likely, Mormon has finished abridging has finished most of his life's work by this time he's going to hand off the things to, to Moroni so most likely Mormon has finished writing the rest of the Book of Mormon by this time 
Right. Yeah. And so now it's much more of a, a current narrative. So yeah, you look at uh, chapter six, they go to war. Mormon does survive with 24 with his son and Moroni is another one. And he, you know, he might be able to get, you know, etch out a few of these other things. But yeah, by this time, the bulk of his life, he's old. The bulk of his life is over. The majority, I'm guessing, of the Book of Mormon is already written as well. Yeah. But man, this verse seven, this is one of the most terrifying. If you really put yourself into this situation where you realize that all of the people are now gathered. He says in verse six, and it came to pass that when we gathered in all of our people into one land of Cumorah. Now, I'm going to say this because if anybody, Book, Book of Mormon geography people are listening to this. I'm not going to get into the one Kimura or the two Kimura theory. Land of Kimura, the- Hill Kimura. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I'm not getting into it. I know that's super important to a lot of people. I, I, it's, it's just not where I'm going with this. Behold, I, Mormon, began to be old, and the knowing it to be the last struggle of my people, and having been commanded of the Lord that I should not suffer the records which had been handed down by our fathers, which were sacred, to fall into the hands of the Lamanites, for the Lamanites would destroy them. Therefore I made this record out of the plates of Nephi, and hid up the hill Cumorah all the records which had been entrusted to me by the hand of the Lord, save it were these few plates which I gave unto my son Moroni. Which goes to your point, Ben. Mm -hmm. And then verse 7, And it came to pass that my people, with their wives and their children, did now behold the armies of the Lamanites marching towards them. And with the awful fear of death, which fills the breasts of all the wicked, did they await to receive them. And it came to pass that they came to battle against us, and every soul was filled with terror because of the greatness of their number. I just can't even imagine. I just can't even imagine being in that moment of just realizing and looking out over just a sea of people coming after you. And and we realize here, if we count all this up, I, I've counted it, I don't know, a dozen times, and I'm hoping my math is right, but Mormon then goes through and says, you know, that my people with, was led by Moroni. And then he lists off, I believe, 12 people. And then he said there are 12 more or 10 more that died. Each of, each of these people, each 22 of the people that he lists off had 10,000 people in their army. So the Nephites were around 220,000 people. That might've been a count of men. It might not have been a count of women and children. You know, sometimes when they count, they just count the men. Right. Yeah. So it, it may have even been more. So in this, it's just the destruction and it's all destroyed down to the 24 people, including Moroni. So it, he says in verse 15, and it came to pass that there were 10 more who did fall by the sword with their 10,000 each. Yea, even all my people, save it were those 20 and four who were with me, and also the few who had escaped into the south countries and a few who had deserted over into the Lamanites had fallen. And their flesh and bones and their blood lay upon the face of the earth, being left by the hands of those who slow them to molder upon the land and to crumble and to return to their mother earth. I can't even fathom this. This scene, this just complete end of his people, which makes Mormon's lamentation here. You know, you, you talked about it as literary poetry. And my soul was rent with anguish because of the slain of my people. And I cried, O ye fair ones. How could you have departed from the ways of the Lord? Oh, you fair ones, how could you have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Behold, if you had not done this, you would have not have fallen, but behold, you are fallen, and I mourn your loss. Oh, you fair sons and daughters, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, how is it that you could have fallen? But behold, you are gone. And my sorrows cannot bring your return. And the day soon cometh that your mortal must put on immortality, and these bodies which are now moldering in corruption must soon become incorruptible bodies. 
and then ye must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, to be judged according to your works. And if it so be that ye are righteous, then are ye blessed with your fathers who gay have gone before you. Oh, that ye had repented before this great destruction had come upon you. But behold, ye are gone. And the Father, yea, the eternal Father of heaven, knoweth your state, and he will do with you according to his justice and mercy. I don't know if a more beautiful, more succinct lamentation could be written. But man, just to kind of put yourself in that moment and to be able to look out at that and to put yourself in Mormon's shoes, having gone through and written this whole record, and then to have that be your experience. Man. Some time ago, I I listened to all of them, but a podcast by Dan Carlin. He does a podcast series called Hardcore History. And he did a series. It's called Ghosts of the Ostfront. It's, um, it's about the Eastern Front of World War II between Germany and Russia. And basically, he goes through and recounts probably a lot of the things that Mormon wouldn't have recounted about his people, <laughs> about what happened in this conflict, which is, to our knowledge, the single most the single largest, both uh, geographically and in terms of numbers and in terms of casualties, war, if even by itself, like regardless of everything else that happened in World War II, just by itself, this front is geographically the largest in terms of numbers, the largest in terms of casualties, the largest of any war in human history that we know of. I do really feel what Mormon says here when he says, I'm not going to go into all of this that ye might not have too great sorrow because of the wickedest people. But if you feel so inclined to listen to this, make sure you do it when you have some time afterwards to just kind of sit with it and let let your sorrow and emotions be there because you got to process it. It's heavy stuff. But the reason I bring it up is because it's a modern day so to speak, equivalent of what's going on here. And even after just listening to it, I, I, obviously I, didn't, I have never experienced anything anywhere near close to that and hope I never do. When I read what Mormon wrote here, I can really identify with it just in the sense that like in some small measure, I felt that after listening to this and then I was driving. And so I had a couple hours afterwards to just sort of sit with it and process it intense heavy stuff in terms of being exposed to the depravity and wickedness that humans are capable of right so anyway only like i said i bring that up in terms of getting us a little more insight into what mormon is feeling and experiencing here at the at the loss of his people and if anybody's so inclined to to listen to that make sure you allocate the time to sit with it and process it yeah, we've come from a place where we've been talking about Christ for so long. The build-up to Christ, the destruction that happens, and then everything Christ brings in. We've both talked about, about how short 4th Nephi was. And, and I did, as we were recording, it's like I could hear this voice in my head saying, you know, if you're complaining about how short 4th Nephi was, you didn't really truly grasp 3rd Nephi. I've been thinking about that ever since. And I've gone back over a little bit of 3rd Nephi just to sit with it a little bit more. And to recognize just how good God is. 
and our Father, and how loving and patient and merciful they are. You know, the Satan is the great accuser. He's the one that gets into our head. Now, whether or not we want to get into like Jungian psychology and talk about how, you know, Satan's in our own head kind of a thing and we're Satan and, and whatever. Just the fact that we live lives where our identities and our ego and that whole natural man thing is always belittling us. And then we're projecting that fear and anxiety and the things that we try to create to overcome our weaknesses and, and those layers of identity. And we project those onto God. And then we live into them. And we live into our fears and our anxieties, and we project that onto God, and then we, surprise, we end up having a God that works that way. And then we just double down on the narratives. I do it still. I'll do it for the rest of my life. That's really why I've come to love and just, I, I want to repent daily. I want to have those moments daily where I see God differently, and I see Him anew. And there's days that come by where, you know, I'll pray, I'll talk with God, but I, I don't, I don't really. But then, then those real moments come along. And when those real moments come along where I know I'm seeing my Heavenly Father, I'm seeing my Savior different, I'm seeing God in a new way. Now those become, those are the moments that I crave now. And I can, well, I don't want to say that I can't. But I can at least somewhat, even if in a very small part, recognize Mormon's frustration of knowing of the goodness of God that he talks about at such a young age, and then seeing the complete unnecessary destruction of his people, that they did it simply by their own choice. And how frustrating that must be to watch that. It's just a great lesson to go through. It's a very sad, it's a very sad set of script, verses and scriptures to be able to to meditate over uh, this week. I think there's a lot here for us and a lot here to take. You know, Mormon doesn't want us to, as you said, he doesn't want us to to get harrowed up in it, but definitely take a look at it and and sit with it and allow that to just kind of pour over you a little bit. Maybe take some some sacred sadness out of it. Yeah, and and just to be with it for a little while appreciate it, find gratitude in it, and and see what presents itself and see what the Lord has for you. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value in that. If, you know, a lot of these moments where we can see tragedy and sorrow, we have a choice to turn to, to despair or to turn to Christ. And I think that if we turn to Christ, we can actually find great meaning and comfort. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted in the knowledge of the plan of our Father in heaven for all of his children. And just like Mormon says here at the end, he says, The Father, the eternal Father of heaven, knoweth your state. He knows what's going on. He knows what happened to you. He knows all the horrors you experienced. And he doeth with you according to his justice and mercy. Wow, that's that's a great message to leave it with, you know? Absolutely. Until next week. We'll be studying Mormon 7 through 9. I'm excited for it. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for listening.